tonight on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, cooking with the Daleks. Enjoy the recipe that will exterminate your species. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our rule. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess and take that you've been guilty of witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Side by Saturday night. From the deserted set of Swamp Thing meets the Toxic Avenger in Smell-O-Vision, behind the Area 51 Portable Raccoon Retreat and Spa Mini Suite, it's clickbait for the mind. Welcome to TalkCast 380, this edition of Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Tonight, with very few reasons left, I am your host, The Dome. I usually have a funny quip at this point. Moving on. Joining the talk cast tonight, some of the gang from the Peabody Time Tunnel. It's our own button pushing, keyboard clacking, sonic screwdrivering, violent virtuoso, our technical taciturn trouble wrangler, Kriana. Or something. I said that without screwing it up, and all I get is an or something. Wow. Yes. There's, now there's you can no. I guess name without screwing up, I'll give you a cookie. C.T. Phipps, one cookie, you owe me. <laughs> I will screw it up later, but one cookie, you owe me. <clears throat> also joining us tonight, back in the Dank Dungeons automatic reference repair room, found behind the semi-hidden entrance of the Donwell's altered medication and med- meditation center. Damn it! See, that's what you did to me. And we're going to do that one again. She's back in the Dank Dungeon's automatic reference repair room, found behind the semi-hidden entrance of the Donwell's Alternate Mediation and Medication Center at Cyborg University's Satellite Campus in Claremont, Wisconsin. Please welcome Zyberian. You can't even get my name right, Dome. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, this week I am apparently the Zyberian. You are, yes. <clears throat> and you and know why that is, don't you? Yes. It's because I said C.T. Phipps' name correctly. (laughs) Well, and did you see, Dome, the very important link I sent you with the pictures of snakes and tiny hats? I did. (laughs) I much did. So I'm going to be busy with that for a while. You hold down the show. Oh, you're a sweetheart. She's playing her video game. You're playing snakes with tiny hats. I'm not playing anything. I'm looking at photos. And somewhere, Awake by Java is playing with his 3D printer. Because he's not here tonight. And we miss him. And hopefully he'll drop by later. Continuing with our on-again, off-again theme, what's so funny about science fiction? Tonight's episode... Our guest is C.T. Phipps, author of, among many other things, The Rules of Super Villainy, uh, Villainy Series, uh, a series of books that features the unlikely anti-hero, although he hates to be called that, 
He's more of a supervillain, at least in his own mind. Gary Karkowski, CT, welcome to Sci-Fi Saturday Night. Hey, glad to be here. You know, it tells you what kind of geek I am, that when you call her the Zyblarian, I was thinking, oh, that's a clever Doctor Who reference. <laughs> no, it was a slip of the tongue because I'm an idiot, but that's okay. You know, no, 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 Zygon, it's clearly you just showing you're superior to us regular geeks. <laughs> You've got to understand that on most podcasts, they would go back and edit that out. Uh, the rest of my staff taught me from the very beginning, you don't ever get to edit out any mistake you ever make because we said so. And it's kind of been that way since the very beginning. We just don't edit oh. mistakes because they're human. Oh, well, and I've been on plenty of podcasts before, and they don't edit them out either. That's just because they're lazy, though. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish we were that lazy. Anyhow, we've been talking uh, on and off about, you know, science fiction that kind of def redefines the genre in one way or another. Uh, and a lot of the authors, as of late, uh, that we've been talking to are uh, giving it a different kind of twist. Uh, we had on the other night, uh, oh, please help me here, <laughs> Tom Snagoski. And, and Tom, if, if you don't know him, is just one great mainstream writer. He's written hard science fiction. And he just wrote this incredibly weird and horribly funny uh, graphic novel called Atomic Frenchie, which is a a French bulldog super villain. And it's f just beautifully funny. And, and we got to talking about him and uh, a number of other authors over the past couple of months just about how... Uh, where did this come from? You know, um, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like, how do I get in touch with the guy who writes this really, really weird stuff? And it's interesting because I had no idea who you were a couple of months ago, other than stumbling across this first book about, uh, the, uh, rules of supervillainy, uh, mm -hmm. which it's, I, it's I, called I, the supervillainy saga. And you missed the great best part of uh, Gary's name and the fact he is Merciless, the supervillain without mercenary. Trademark. Trademark, yes. Absolute trademark at the end. Unless he's Merciful, which is his kind of doppelganger brother that shows up, I think, in book three. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it's very difficult keeping track of all the alternate universes. Uh, but it, this is the kind of book where if you read it quickly... Or if you have the audiobook, you want to keep going back because there are so many smart little quips, cultural references, and, and references to things that have nothing to do with where you are or what you're saying or what, what's actually going on that it's, it's wonderful. And you sit there just feeling rather smug at the end of a chapter going, yeah, I got most of that. <laughs> Uh, that would be in like a hundred years, assuming uh, there's someone geeky enough to do it. I would love to see the annotated edition. It's like, and this uh, series was popular in the eighties for like 16 people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This version of dungeons and dragons was only known by seven people. Um, uh, fourth edition. 
Exactly. So how did you get involved in putting, where, where did Gary Karkovsky come from? Well, it's an interesting story there, uh, because he's Good, five. Because otherwise this, this podcast will stink. We, get, we desperately need an interesting story. So go. Oh, for yes. it. Well, uh, by and large, Gary is a very, uh, unusual character in that, uh, when I was first starting out writing, I was determined to be, uh, the guy who wrote this big, huge, epic, uh, science fiction drama story that would ch- uh, be my magnum opus and I would never have to work again after I finished it. And uh, while writing this thing that I did eventually get out and sold like 10 copies of, I was thinking, you know, I just have this idea for a funny super villain book, this brain candy uh, shot straight to the arm like heroin. Uh, just the idea <laughs> of this distilling Spider-Man as a supervillain in terms of attitude and then just making him part Bugs Bunny, part Josh Whedon. Just this guy who is so generally savvy uh, that he's able to run roughshod across the universe. And that was a seeming really original idea three or four years ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah. I had this great char- a great character idea there, and I just wrote uh, his adventure rapidly down there and published it, and I think no one's going to buy this. And I think it's outsold everything else uh, by a factor of 10 put together. That's That's wonderful. So the whole... The whole first book, was this meant to be a, a series? Uh, the, the, I was thinking, like, no one is going to buy the rules of supervillainy, and no one was going to be particularly interested in a comic book uh, supervillain adventure uh, with uh, him breaking all the rules of uh, superhero comics. And, you know, I obviously wasn't thinking of Deadpool or uh, more like Gwenpool as the character is now. Uh, but... Uh, everyone really liked uh, Gary, and I was like, and once I finished the first book, I was like, you know, I have to, I have to continue this, and I changed the ending to something which led to just the next adventure, and uh, have has continued to go from there. Gary just refuses to leave my brain. He's taking up roost, sitting his uh, feet on the table, carrying a gun at my head. Now, Gary, Gary lives in in uh, an other USA. Uh, and the, the, the alternate history USA that he lives in is not a very pretty place. It's, it's rather dystopian. Uh, and there are supervillains and superheroes and everybody lives in a perpetual state of gray. There's no really good, good. And there's no really bad, bad. Everybody is shades of everything. And there is a superhuman gene that just kind of randomly exists in some families and is recessive sometimes and positive sometimes. And Gary's older brother was a superhero. Hmm. Well, super villain, actually. Super the, villain. The joke, yeah. The joke is that Gary is, uh, a lot of the uh, stories that I had been reading before my, as kind of research for writing the super villainy saga, they were taking a very serious, dark and like, our world, uh, but suddenly powers arrive, you know, like heroes or something. And I was like, is no one just doing ball to the wall, crazy, uh, shit in their, uh, and their, uh, super villain and superhero worlds. And apparently not. So 
I'm uh, through everything in the kitchen sink into creating this world and thinking about how people on the ground would look uh, to all these fights and conflicts going on around them and how that would affect history. And I, I think it was just a random aside that gradually became a plot point that the equivalent of Superman, Ultra God, uh, grabbed Stalin and Hitler like during the first days of World War II. <laughs> Well, the, the one of the funniest plot points is that he dated a superhero in college, and he kept she kept erasing his mind when he got close to understanding that she was a superhero, so that she would quote keep him safe. And when he finally found out about it, that's that's one of the funniest reveals I've ever read. Oh, yes. That was based on a moment in, I think, it was either one of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies where he uh, kisses away her memory, and I'm like, that is a dick move, Clark. <laughs> Absolutely right, it was. <laughs> and, yeah. and, it's, and it's funny, too, because there are so many that-was-a-dick-move moments in this series, and you just sit there and you go, no, yes, no. Yes, uh, it's just uh, wonderfully funny. Oh yes, it's a it's a great uh, book there because I throw in these incredibly what I think are obscure references there, and these are the ones that immediately pop out to the uh, geeks in the audience there. And uh, it's also funny because uh, when I wrote the book, it was right before uh, the superhero explosion because publishing takes like two or three years for, uh, for if you're doing traditionally. And uh, in this case, I was like, you know, it would be great to give Gary a sort of uh, quirky female sidekick. So why am I based around this character? I think like only people who watch the Batman animated series know of. <laughs> and yeah. like, oh, Harley Quinn. I'm, that, she's, uh, I'm sure that uh, the hardcore fans will remember who she is. <laughs> and then oddly enough, a year later, bang. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and bang for, uh, for the other characters there. And it's like... Okay, I really hope I'm legally protected there. I I, I want to know about this evil president that you brought out in book three. Uh, President and Omega. President Omega, uh, who believed in the security of the United States and needed to build a wall. And I'm going, are you <laughs> kidding me? Are you freaking serious? Uh, it, 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 the story about President Omega is... Uh, kind of hilarious, especially because I point out, if you note, he was referenced in the first book. Yeah, he was. Yes, and you know, the funny thing was, I was creating a uh, kind of trashy uh, business mogul uh, villain uh, from the very beginning, and I, I threw him together as a combination of, and I quote, the Red Skull, Handsome Jack, and uh, Kang the Conqueror, and then I threw in a uh, because I remember a few years uh, during the Obama administration, uh, reality star Donald J. Uh, Trump uh, had uh, said he might run for president someday, and I thought, okay, why not throw in some books there too? And, you know, that kind of lucked in there. Lucked my ass. It was scary listening to it. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just thinking to myself, okay, this is a couple of years old. Where the fuck did this come from? Holy oh, shit. Yeah. I mean, just, yeah, it, you know, kudos, my friend. That was amazingly funny. Uh, it was kudos there, though. Quite a few of uh, my fans uh, were like, oh, why'd you bring make this political? It's like, the character was like this before. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and you know, they're also, and I also got some one star reviews like, how dare you make the president a villain? And I'm oh, like, Gary's a villain. Yeah, Gary is an unabashed supervillain villain. Yeah, anti-establishment supervillain. And you know, it's like, I think it's like, you, what do you think he's supposed to be? He's just raw, raw patriotism kind of guy when you know the guy's hunting him down. <sighs> it's it's just uh, funny there having Gary versus the president in the third book. Because like, how am I going to top the last couple of villains? Which okay, included Cthulhu <laughs> and uh, a zombie apocalypse and Lex Luthor. Yeah, and the zombie apocalypse starts at the end of book one and just continues with a vengeance at the beginning of book two. Oh, yeah. Uh, book, book two, I was like, well, I figured the zombie uh, trend was probably dying down, but I was just like, I'm going to go with a bang there. How would superheroes deal with, a, with the entire city turning undead? It's, and just, like, uh, ran with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, uh, we could talk about just this series of books the, mm -hmm. for the entire show, and, and I'm good with that. But, again, I was totally unaware uh, because, quite honestly, I was totally unaware of you until I stumbled across that first book. And I guess that's the way it happens most of the time. It's a stumble upon, and then if you grab mm -hmm. it, and you, it, it grabs you really well. You start looking for other stuff. So, uh, and then I began to realize, uh, you know, the uh, Cthulhu Armageddon stuff, uh, mm -hmm. which I which I haven't read yet. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, to be totally honest, I really want to read the Agent G series, which I guess is too deep already. And, yeah, uh, third one should be coming around Thursday or so. And the Bright Fall Mysteries. If for no other reason, then the titles are so freaking cool. Mm -hmm. I was a teenage were deer and an American were deer in Michigan. So talk to me yeah, about those are totally original titles and completely not taken from werewolf movies. I can't imagine that they anybody else may have used anything remotely like it. Uh, the third one will be called the hoofening. <laughs> Nice, nice. So, what's that? Mm -hmm. What What is that series about? Well, uh, to give you an actual rundown of the three series you mentioned, Cthulhu Armageddon is a uh, post-apocalypse western, uh, which is set in uh, very influenced by Stephen King's The Gunslinger. And okay, uh, all these uh, stories about H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos either are straight up regular horror stories, or uh, they have oh, the plucky adventurers have stopped the apocalypse from happening for now. Uh, move on to the next crisis. Uh, in this case, uh, the great old ones have arisen. They destroyed the world, and now humankind is living in pockets spread all over an alien landscape. Okay, that sounds and like got, a, a nice, relaxing uh, uh, romance. Perfect. <laughs> oh, oh, yes. You know, and just, you know, John uh, Henry Booth, who is who I swear got more flack for being black in the series than I think uh, any of the effects of historic humanity. <laughs> it's like, you can't do that in Lovecraft. And I'm like, why not? And uh, how, how about, excuse me, I just did. So, you know. <laughs> yes, uh, it was kind of, it's kind of hilarious there. Uh, and 
definitely got two books of the series. Uh, both were standalones because I finished the first one with like, that was a depressing, morbid series. I never want to go uh, touch again, despite uh, having, again, gunslingers versus uh, ancient old elder horrors. And then I'm like, no, I got more to say. <laughs> That's always, that always trumps out against, uh, I don't want to do this anymore. Wait, there's another story. Damn it. Yeah, yeah, I'm probably doing a third one. And, but uh, right, but it's a series that's finished every time I, I, I visit. <laughs> and the, the second book series is Agent G, which is uh, the story, which was my attempt. To, I first started writing it as a straight-up thriller, and it's just like, you know, I cannot do this series without putting cyborgs and robots in it. Every series needs a couple of cyborgs, couple of robots. Oh, yeah. yeah, maybe the premise there is sun something. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh yeah, it's like I, I can't apparently write anything without being completely in the genre. In this <laughs> case, Agent G is a assassin for the International Refugee Society, which stands for uh, which of course has the initials IRS, and that's secretly an assassin organization. Uh, you uh, have your memory erased, and you work for them for 10 years and you'll supposedly get your uh, memories back and then a big, huge severance package. These, these incredibly well-trained uh, enhanced assassins are, of course, all suspicious of this offer. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, yeah, G himself is particularly so, and uh, the first book is about him unraveling the mystery while trying to also take on another group of uh, cyborg assassins. And it takes place in the present day with the idea that uh, all this dangerous... Uh, advanced technology is uh, suppressed by the government, uh, so it's only by the use of these uh, private military contractor groups. Okay. Yeah, uh, and, and basically, I started, I did that book and the sequel, and I'm like, you know it would be fun if I just destroyed the world in the third book and uh, had it turn into a cyberpunk dystopia. It's and like, that's where you're going with it? <laughs> oh, it's like, it's like, it's how, it's how 2018 became a uh, Blade Runner 2049. And I'm like, it's not all Trump's fault. Maybe not. We'll see. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, no, no, it's President Omega. They're not, they're totally different characters. Totally. Okay. Totally. One has nothing to do with the other, but they're both oh, yeah. exactly the same. It's the scariest thing I've uh, ever had in my life. Yes. I remember my character, Cindy, the totally not Harley Quinn and legally distinct character, uh, calling uh, President Omega the big orange Cheeto. Yes, she did. <laughs> and it was at that point that I went, I literally, I was driving. I had the audio book on in the car. I was driving and I pulled over, laughed for a couple of minutes. And I went, you bastard, you <laughs> bastard. Good job. And it was, you know, it's my, my, my wife, God bless her, um, has this wonderful habit of talking back to the television you know, if especially during like news or interviews, and she'll like as if she's there and can can actually, you know, talk to the newscaster or talk to the person or. But I found myself talking back to your audio book. It was the most ridiculous <laughs> thing ever. Oh well, you know, Gary as far is aware he's a fictional character on the level. I'm sure I don't. I've never written it in there, but I just have the suspicion, and he's coming after me. <laughs> it'll be like it'll be like Stephen King. Gosh, I hope not. Uh, but uh, yeah, um, and finally, the Bright Falls mysteries. Yes, I was just uh, going to get you back on track for that. 
Yeah, uh, the, the idea there was I wanted to see if I could, could break into urban fantasy after a few failed attempts. And I was thinking, well, why not go the Gary direction there and uh, have a protagonist who lampshades all the uh, urban fantasy, paranormal romance tropes and tears them to shreds just the way Gary does with comic books. It uh, became a lot darker, more serious series, and and as much as one can do when you have a protagonist turns into a deer, and and literally weakness of the were deer races, they're forced to make puns. Ooh. <laughs> yes, it's like, and Jane Doe's uh, parents uh, clearly hated her for giving her that name. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And if oh, Jane, yeah. well, and if Jane Doe ever walks into Callahan's Cross Time Saloon, she's in deep trouble. Oh yes. Well, the premise is with that is I was also strongly influenced by the revival of Twin Peaks going on at the time. Jane is, li- is a yeah. Uh, Jane is living in normal life as a 18 year old uh, waitress uh, working in a town that's populated by a lot of uh, shapeshifters. Uh, the supernatural is public in this world, and uh, one day her friend comes to visit and says, "Hey, how are you doing?" And it's like, "Oh, uh, my sister just got murdered, and your brother is the chief suspect." Yeah, nothing new, just, you know, another another day in Sleepy Town. Yeah. yeah, and Jane is like, oh, and obviously wants to stop that, and it doesn't help the cops are about just as confident as the ones in Springfield. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Jane tries to go uh, investigate the mystery and uncovers the town's dark history, and then the next book uh, shows up where she finds that the town's history is even darker than she thought. Which was actually hard to believe, but yeah. So, oh yeah, uh, I, I got I got some people like uh, I thought that that the fans generally come in two groups: the people who really really love the humor but wonder why it got so damn dark in places, because uh, apparently you can be shot uh, by just about anyone uh, if you, they find out you're a shifter, and that's considered self defense. And uh, the people who really really like the dark mystery and like why did you make all these horrible puns, like the dear lifeful and the dearly beloved, their local shops owned by our family. <laughs> they wouldn't let them make the dearly departed how do, how do you do this okay ah. when, when, when you sit down uh to write do you does do does the humor naturally infuse itself into the process do you have to actually sit down and and kind of script it out or go, this is a good place for a joke. How, how do you turn what, what could be a very dark, dystopian, not at all goddamn funny novel, and turn it into something that now becomes appealing to more than one group at a time? Well, the thing about humor is, I think it, it is due to the way I view humor, which is, I see humor as a form of stress relief and reaction to the absurdity and horrible circumstances uh, that the world is around. Uh, In the case of uh, Gary and company, uh, they're all living in a pretty uh, crappy kind of Gotham City-esque city, which has things like, oh, uh, zombies trying to kill everyone, or uh, superheroes uh, based on 90s stereotypes like Cable uh, shooting up the place. And I'm thinking... Well, if you're not going to laugh, you're going to cry, and 
by making every virtually every single character either extremely uh, straight laced or a wise ass, it becomes inherently funny. Okay, that that explains why you do it, but that doesn't. I, explain then I then I just think it's because I'm a sarcastic jerk ass. Could it, well, that could very well be, but <laughs> and I, that I understand completely because we surround ourselves with the kind of people we are, and I'm certainly one of those, and I'm glad you are. But I guess what I'm asking is, uh, I'm always mystified and interested in the process. I mean, mm -hmm. I've met writers, and I, I've talked with a, a ton of them, and some of them are, I have to write 5,000 wor 5, words a day. And it has to be before noon because afternoon I just can't write. Or I get up in the morning, I sit in front of my computer, and I stare out into the meadow, and I wait. Or after everybody goes to sleep at night, that's when I can write. So that's when I go up to my little private room, and I write till 3 or 4 in the morning. So how do you do it? What, what is it that makes it work for you? Uh, generally speaking, I uh, try and sit down and write a little bit at a time until I can find a time when just about everyone is in bed and I can uh, focus completely on my work. Uh, it all just uh, adds up and eventually. <laughs> and the way I, I choose to write is uh, is the Kevin Smith method or, uh, or alternatively the D Dungeons and Dragons Game Master method where I basically just imagine uh, each character uh, as someone playing them and going like, okay, how would they react to X situation and what kind of wise-ass comment would they come up with? So when you were putting uh, the Supervillainy series together, did you, when you had the first book, when you had the idea for the first book, did you like script it out ahead of time or block it out ahead of time? Or did you create the characters and just kind of throw them in a hat and then let, let them drop on the board and see where they went? Uh, it, I have I have a vague idea, like I sketch out a number of things going on, but it's very much uh, the characters directing where the action is going and coming up with their own often incredibly dumb, but just dumb enough to work ideas. So the um, thing, and, go ahead. And I'm that sorry. just often works uh, out very well because uh, when you throw in a new element and seeing how they play off the characters, you can really generate a lot of interesting stuff. So but I guess you, the what writer that, don't know. right. But what I think that means is, in your mind, you've got these characters much more well developed when you start than you let on when the book begins. Oh, it's it's definitely a, a case of I think the characters reveal themselves uh, to me, and they're always there. I think underneath my mind, but sometimes even I don't uh, know when these surprises gonna happen because. At one point when I'm writing uh, Gary, and I had the idea. Uh, you know it would be really funny if he, uh, if I made a, a Lois Lane joke about how he used to date a superheroine super and he doesn't realize it even though she's only wearing glasses. And, yep. he's like, and then suddenly that just becomes a major part of Gary's character that he was deeply in love with, oh, for all intents and purposes, Supergirl, and then gets betrayed by her at the end when she yep. loses her job. <laughs> and I'm like... That that is something I did not think would become a huge story arc for the character, and uh, the fact he's still carrying the torch for like uh, 
five years or ten years later. Ten years later, because he spent five years in an alternate history prison with his first wife, who's actually his first wife reimagined as a vampire who's gotten her soul back and yet really mm. isn't quite the same. Jesus, God, make me stop. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's like... It's like, and you know, just uh, and here's that's that's the thing that uh, this will probably be a spoiler for the second book uh, there, but uh, it just like I'm, I wrote the the ending of the book there, and it ends on this triumphant of evil is slain, the hero uh, Gary has saved the city, the vampire uh, and zombies and Cthulhu are all gone, everything is great, and then I'm like, you know, what's the most horrible thing I could do to him right now? And you did it. You did it. You you broke my heart when you did that. Oh yes, and I'm like, there. I'm glad I did that because you know, uh, you have to hurt the ones you love. You're going to piss off so many of your readers, and yet they're going to come back to see what happens in book three. And oh, it was yeah. it was it was wonderfully done. Um, oh, and uh, wait till you get to uh, the next book, which is the tournament of super villainy, which is done, and I'm just waiting for my publisher to actually read it so he can approve it. Uh, oh, that didn't sound better. No, I understand exactly what that means. <laughs> oh yes, uh, but because that because that has a, an equally cracked present. Uh, because I was thinking, what have I not done in parroting superhero of oh, so far? And I was like, you know, let's do one of those big multiverse crossovers. And just because I, I want to dare my readers to uh, follow me down this uh, yellow brick road of madness, let's use the characters from my other books. Oh no! <laughs> this is this yes. is, is going to be challenging for me because I don't know your other books, and I oh, suppose well, you know it's a good way to you do. Don't need, you don't need to uh, read the other books uh, to understand that they're characters from different genres <laughs> having come in there. But if you do, I'm sure you'll get a more of a kick it because uh, G and uh, Jane are uh, are joined as part of Gary's posse this time around. If we can. And, uh, let's- and it's it's a Mortal Kombat esque tournament for a wish that can uh, uh, that can be granted to do anything. It's like, yeah, let's just throw some Dragon Ball Z and in, in, in Mortal Kombat now. In, in homage to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, actually, in homage to Bill and Ted go to hell more than anything else. You bring the character uh, of Death in uh, early mm-hmm. in Book Two, I believe. Mm-hmm. And and yes. death is a very different character than we've ever seen death before. Then you let her go away and come back and go away and come back. Are we going to see death in book five, please? Uh, we'll always see. Uh, well, we'll definitely see death continue on with the air because it, it's just part of the comic book absurdity that Gary, this uh, incredibly nerdy but good-looking person that uh, only exists in comics. <sighs> Uh, is uh, it just randomly has death, the, the anthropomorphic concept of entropy uh, fall for him. And I'm like, why not? This is just how crazy this book is. And death, for some reason, in his mind, takes the form of his dead wife. Well, it's, uh, when you're dealing with something that obviously has no human form, you take a form that's comfortable uh, for the character, except in this case, it's obviously really creepy for him. Creepier than hell. <laughs> oh. So book five is coming out this year. Uh, shortly. Mm-hmm. And six, actually. Oh, nice. Oh, oh that- yes. we'll, we'll, we'll even be getting, uh, hopefully, a spinoff, too, uh, that 
uh, comes from the perspective of uh, another group of people uh, on the Garyverse, and we get to see it's not quite as insanely uh, funny uh, when you're dealing with someone who isn't crazy. As I mentioned earlier, um, after reading the book, uh, the first one, Rules of Supervillainy, Audible had it uh, a sale on that book, and I happened to grab it because I really wanted to hear it. And that forced me to get uh, <laughs> episodes two, three, and four uh, because they're just that good. Um, I want to go make the first book free so it can be like crack and the first hit is always going to... Uh, holy get, shit, get you should because <laughs> that, I'd be mainlining this son of a bitch right now. The reality is the voices... The guy who does the audiobooks is amazingly the voice that's in my head when I read the books. It was like, you know, somehow uh, we found the best guy for me. I don't know for anybody else, oh, but Jerry that was Capri the voice in my is, head. He's absolutely great. He, he uh, does the voice for uh, Cthulhu Armageddon and Agent G2. And what's his name again? Jeffrey Kaffer, he uh, is notably the guy who also did the Bioshock uh, novelization. Ah, he's yeah. Oh, he's, he's, he has an amazing range uh, that he brings to all the other books. And I, I'd recommend just about anything by him. And he's always like saying, like, do more super villainy books. And I'm like, you really like doing them? And I was like, no, I really love getting paid. <laughs> and they're, so best, like, I, they're best sellers. I wondered from an author's point of view, how an author feels about a different variation on his book. And an audiobook is the same as a written book, but not because there's that other layer there, that, that subtlety and the nuance that a voice brings to it. How was it the first time you heard the first audiobook of this? I was really impressed. And uh, I liked uh, the range that Jeffrey bought and, I thought uh, he the audio, and this is something I rarely would say, but uh, the audiobook version is probably better than the uh, novelized version, and most of my fans seem to agree. Uh, yeah, I really think uh, he managed to capture emotions and deaths that uh, aren't necessarily always going to be immediately apparent on the text, and uh, I really uh, like it. And I hope when it's adapted to other mediums, like say a Gary comic book, uh, that the authors will bring their own style and touches to it. So uh, am I hearing you say that there's a Gary comic book in the works? Well, I'm trying to get it in the works there, but that's not going to be something you'll probably see for a couple of years. Definitely, uh, though, uh, there's two more books coming out on the Garyverse, and uh, we'll obviously have them in audio form, and we'll have the spinoff. Okay, what else is coming out from you this year? Uh, some more Agent G, and uh, if I'm lucky, we'll be getting a, another Jane book. Oh, by the way, that that is the the main protagonist in the Bright Falls mystery, Jane Doe. Yes, Jane Doe, that, the title of the Weird Deer. What what a great name! <laughs> it's like, yes, excuse me, nondescript person walks into a room. Her name, Jane Doe. Oh yes. Uh, my, my cover artist, uh, uh, who created the uh, image, some beautiful art for the work, uh, apparently was a really big Life is Strange fan. So, and now everyone uh, looks at the covers and is thinking, like, is that Max Caulfield? 
Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's just a short uh, bulk uh, girl uh, with a pet deer. I can't imagine why anybody would have thought that. But once again, yeah. uh, art imitates life or life imitates art. I'm not sure which anymore. All I know is there, there's this wonderful world out there uh, that you've worlds actually that uh, you've created. I'm so glad that I stumbled upon them. I'm so glad that I stumbled upon you. Um, thanks for what you're doing, man. This is cool shit. And mm -hmm. uh, thank you for uh, coming on the show tonight. Oh, yes. And you, and you, uh, I'm very glad that I actually was able to have an interview with a person who's familiar with the entire work. And, you know, uh, it, it's been really uh, fun uh, talking about it. I mean, we didn't even get to discussing the fact that Gary's uh, future daughter is named Leia. Yeah, but that's not what they call her. <laughs> uh, no, no. She, she, she's one of those uh, supers with the uh, super brain. Yeah, she is. <laughs> Guys, if you haven't read the stories, grab the books, grab the audio books. This is a fun ride, and, and you're going to really enjoy it. I guarantee it. CT, thank you for joining us on the show tonight. Thank you very much. Uh, I look forward uh, to uh, doing it again someday. Uh, yeah, next next books that come out, shoot me an email and let's let's get on and we'll talk about it, my friend. You got it. All right, Bye. thank you so much, Kriana. Have we got any time for news here tonight? That would be no. <laughs> Coming up next week on Sci-Fi Saturday Night, James Asriel of the Horror and Sci-Fi Prop Preservation Association was supposed to be on last week, will be on next week because of a parallel world's time shift. It was a horrible accident. Sci-Fi Saturday Night is the official podcast Please visit Comic Art House for some of the best deals on original art. I know.